You know, I really believe you have to have children around in order to really be able to understand or enjoy the wonder of Christmas. You really, it's the type of thing that children kind of add that little extra spice to the event. There's something about the way they translate the event that, that turns Christmas Day into, in, into a celebration. Sometimes they get it wrong, but even in getting it wrong, they add a note of joy to the event. One parent was talking about how closely uh, her 18-month-old toddler had been, been listening to Christmas carols around the house, but she didn't realize how much it really meant to her child until one day when she, at dinner time picked up a bunch of mashed peas off her plate and she threw them on the floor and then shouted out with excitement, Peas on Earth. Uh, <laughs> Another father, in the true story, uh, was telling about how his four-year-old daughter had obviously been paying closer attention to the Christmas play that she was rehearsing when one day she was uh, being, being quizzed by, on, on her colors as she looked into her little crayon box. And the father took out a silver crayon out of the box and he asked her, what is this? What color is this? And she said, gold. And, he's, and he said, no, 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 it's not gold. Guess again. The little girl thought for a moment, and then with a big grin, she cried out, frankincense. And actually, it was myrrh, but no, it was, you know, you, you get the, the idea. The fact is, sometimes children do get it wrong, and, but sometimes they get it right, even when they've gotten it wrong. Uh, in fact, they get it more right than we would ever really imagine. Uh, among all the stories, I read one of a Christmas pageant where the director uh, had told the children that if they forgot their lines... They should ad-lib something instead of just standing there. And just say the first thing that comes to your mind, she said, and then, then we'll all move on and, and, and recover the play later. Well, everything went well uh, on, on, until the three wise guys, boys, men, whatever you want to call them, made their entrance. And the first one actually said his line with utter perfection. He said, baby Jesus, here's your gold. And the second one followed and said, Baby Jesus, here's your frankincense. And the third little boy stood up and automatically froze. It was obvious that as he looked in the manger, he was like a deer looking in the headlights. He, he, he couldn't say anything, nothing. He had nothing. And so the director was off to the side whispering, saying, Say anything. So the little boy looked in the manger again turned around and then announced to the entire congregation, ooh, doesn't he look like his dad? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, 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 I got to tell you, that little boy was smarter, really, than he knows. You couldn't find a better expression for the truth of Christmas than the, what that little boy had to say. That when Jesus was born, well, he in fact really did look just like his Father. It's called the incarnation. God come into the flesh. And it was the fulfillment of a promise that was made in Isaiah that Emmanuel would come, that word Emmanuel, God with us. In the Bible, we hear Jesus identify himself in such a way. In John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And in John chapter 12, verse 45, if anyone looks at me, Jesus says, they see the one who sent me. It's his way of saying, I look just like my dad. And in John 14, verses 7 through 10, Jesus pressed the issue with his disciples by saying, if you really knew me, 
He said, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And as we read this morning, Philip, one of the disciples, responded saying, Lord, show us the father. That'll be enough. And Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. I really do look just like my dad. The incarnation means that we no longer need to wonder what God is like. We are able to see Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, and in, in that discovery, we are able to know it all. In Jesus, everything we need to know about God is wrapped up in a personality and is put out in full display. It's funny, during the French Revolution, a, a number of philosophers, Voltaire, Rousseau, they, they gathered together and they attempted to eliminate what they saw as the oppressive influence of the church. And, and, and they sought then to create their own code of ethics and virtue and morality and value in order to invent a man-made belief that would raise humanity into godlike dimensions. But in the end, one of them wrote, in utter frustration, he said, the more we identify the character of the divine, the more it ends up looking just like Jesus. <laughs> in him, we read in the Bible, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He does look just like his Father. And because of Christmas, because of the incarnation, none of us, are left to wonder what God is like because Jesus is on display. But even more, and this is the second great discovery of Christmas, because of the incarnation, we no longer have to wonder what God has chosen to do for us from the very beginning of time. Because what we see, even from the very beginning, is God on a mission in Jesus Christ. I have a confession to make. One of my greatest challenges as a pastor over, what now, 40 years has been uh, to, 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 to find something new to say at Christmas time. After so many years, the message is so familiar, you might find yourself wondering, once everything's been said, what more can be said by way of a sermon? And, and yet, as I studied through the Advent season, opening my books and reading through the Christmas material over and over again, you can, you can imagine my thrill at the discovery of something that just happened on this day, which made it even more special. It has to do with the selection of the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Ask yourself the question, why did God choose Bethlehem as the stage for his first Christmas pageant? Why Bethlehem? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Why Bethlehem? Was it because of its size? This tiny little village tucked away in the Judean hills? After all, God majors in taking those things which are weak in order to exhibit his strength. He did it with David and Goliath. Why not do it with Bethlehem as well? Over 700 years before the birth of Christ, Micah had prophesied that Bethlehem, though you are small, the prophet said, Bethlehem, though you are small, out of you will will come one who will be ruler over Israel, the Messiah. That's what the prophet said. So was it paramount that Jesus be born in Bethlehem because of its size? It could have been. 
Or maybe it was because of its association with King David. It was the house of royalty. After all, the city of Bethlehem was known as David's city, and the Messiah was prophesied to be a descendant of David with that regal lineage. And when the angels made their announcement to the shepherds, didn't they use that as the word for Bethlehem? Instead, they they didn't say Bethlehem. They said, today in the city of David, uh, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Is it because of that? Possibly. There were a number of good reasons why, why God chose to land His Son on planet Earth at Bethlehem. But let me share with you this morning, there's something more. As I was reading through Alfred Edersheim's massive study entitled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, I I came across a simple paragraph. It's a study of the cultural and historical uh, frame around the Gospels. and, 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 And in it, there was a simple paragraph that caught my attention. Listen to what I read. It was no mistake, he writes, that shepherds received the angel's announcement. Jewish tradition proves illustrative and helpful in this regard. That that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem was a settled conviction. Equally so was the belief that he was to be revealed from the Migdal Eder, or the Tower of the Flock. This was not a watchtower of the ordinary flocks which pastured in the sheep grounds beyond Bethlehem throughout the rest of Judea, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem, Bethlehem being the first of the villages just south of Jerusalem. The flocks that pastured there in Bethlehem were the ones that were destined for the temple sacrifices. The shepherds understood the symbolic significance of Isaiah's prophecy. They knew that their Savior, the Messiah, would be led as a lamb to the slaughter and that God would lay upon him the iniquity of us all as it had been written in Isaiah chapter 53. And they must have realized that because of a Savior, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, there would be no more need for their sacrificial lambs to represent sinners on the altar of sacrifice. When Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, no wonder there was no room in the inn. The one who chose his own mother also chose his own birthplace. Could there have been more appropriate place than a manger for the Lamb of God? You see, these flocks in Bethlehem were not just ordinary sheep, run-of-the-mill They were special, tender lambs being cultivated as sacrifice for the temple sacrifices. And these were not normal shepherds. These were temple authorities. They were the ones who who ensured the quality control of of the lambs who would go to the altar and were the first to see Jesus. When the shepherds heard the word out in the fields, they knew exactly where to go, to the Migdal Eder, the place where the pure, unblemished lambs set aside for temple sacrifice, reserved for the purpose of taking away the guilt of sin, were kept in a, in a corral, if you were. And when they arrived, what did they find? There was Jesus. The prophet Isaiah made the connection with these perfect lambs and this perfect child when he 
wrote in Isaiah chapter 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. When I look at Bethlehem now, it's it's as if a divine announcement has been made Behold, not just a little baby, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away my sin and yours as well. Some see Christmas as a single event. A day that we we arrive at, we celebrate, and then we move on. But it's really only the beginning of a road that would lead us to another place where it would all be fulfilled, the day of the cross, where Jesus, having come and emptied himself of of all, taking on the form of a servant, would would go to to the cross to become the perfect sacrifice that would set every single one of us free, set you free, set me free, set us all free from guilt and sin. And somehow this Christmas, my meditations now take me back to Bethlehem with a new appreciation and a tremendous amount of thanksgiving. It's as if looking in the manger, I I now see a decision that was made by a very determined little baby, a costly decision that was made because of love. Let me see if I can explain it. In, In his book, Written in Blood, Robert Coleman tells the story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that that she had the same disease that the boy had recovered from two years earlier, but her only chance for recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. And so since the two children were from the same rare blood type, the boy, in fact, was the perfect donor. Would you give your blood to Mary, the doctor asked, and little Johnny He hesitated, his lower lip began to tremble, and then after a moment he took a deep breath and then he smiled and he said, sure, anything for my sister. What a boy. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room, Mary pale and thin, Johnny robust and healthy. Neither one of them spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned and he whispered to his sister, and as the, nurdle, as the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile began to fade, and, 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 and his face scrunched up in utter concentration as he watched the blood flow into the tube. And when the ordeal was almost over, his voice, slightly shaky, broke the silence. So, doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny had hesitated so much. And why his lip had trembled when he had agreed to donate his blood. He thought that in giving his blood to his sister, it meant giving up his life. And in that brief moment, he had made a great decision. He would give himself so that his sister would live. What a love story. 
Well, Johnny fortunately didn't have to die to save his sister. But his example only gives us a hint of the idea of the tremendous love story embedded in Christmas. Where God, knowing our condition, that we all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each one have turned our own ways, and, and that we are transgressors, chose to come to be crushed for our iniquities, to face a punishment that would bring us peace and, and bear wounds that, through him, would bring us healing. What a love story and what a gift. Thank you, Jesus, for Christmas. Thank you, God, for your love.